I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. Whether or not it's Mose, whatever the technology is, coastal cities around the world are going to have to do something. And Venice has done something. You know, Venice is one of the places that cities that are in danger can look to. Venice's new seawalls are giving the historic city a fighting chance in the face of rising waters. In this week's episode, Gil and I spoke to the New York Times' Rome bureau chief, Jason Horowitz, and his colleague Emma Babola about their recent front-page feature on Venice and the unlikely success of the Mose seawalls. Jason and Emma, welcome to Climate Positive. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're really excited to have you on. Hillary and I are both loyal subscribers to the New York Times. I tell you, on April 2nd, I, I was just floored by your above-the-fold cover story about Venice seawalls to really give a sense of the brief feature you, you got into. And we're, we're just so excited to talk to you about this really first-rate piece of journalism on what's happening in that famed old city. So to kick it off... Jason, I, you had a very nice tweet that captures the thrust of the piece, and you said, Venice's seawalls embody Italy's ambition, ingenuity, political instability, bureaucracy, corruption, defeatism, and against-all-odds success. Now the city's sentinel may also stand as a monument to the futility of man's efforts to stop climate change. Could you expand on that tweet, and Emma, I'll ask you the same question. Sure. First, I can't believe I got all those words into a tweet. It's a, it's a long tweet. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> just, just under 280 characters. I think the idea there is that, you know, for decades now, going back to the 1970s, you know, early 1970s, Italy recognized that it needed to protect Venice from the sea. And it just took a very, very long time. And not just the building of these walls, but the politics around it, the corruption around it, the boldness of the engineering that was involved with it. All of it struck me sort of as a metaphor for Italy that has all these often contradictory forces going on at once. And the thing about Italy, when you've covered it for a while, you realize that when all the chips seem down and it seems like the place is heading off of a cliff, it somehow pulls it off. And I think what we saw was that uh, Italy pulled it off again when these walls went up and a lot of people had given up on them. And we can talk about if they went up too late and the problems that they might cause in the, in the future. But for now, they went up and Venice is safe and safer really than many of the coastal cities around the world that are facing rising sea levels because of climate change. The futility of it comes in the future when, if the sea level keeps climbing, as many experts think it will, then the problem will be that the walls might have to stay up so often that you create an entire new slate of problems. And you'll, as one scientist told us, they'll be talking about uh, lowering the walls instead of raising them. And the, the consequences there would be that Venice could be choked off from the sea that's actually its lifeblood. Emma, what was your big takeaway from the reporting? I agree with Jason that in some in some ways it's a metaphor of many things that happen in Italy. And maybe also more from like a personal perspective, it, you know, we started reporting this story before the walls worked. And at that point, for years, we had just heard 
criticism about them, criticism about the corruption involved in the project. And there were still like, you know, it was kind of like a national debate on whether the walls were ever going to work. And they had become also like an issue of like political discussion with like different parties siding for the walls or against the walls. And so, you know, when they actually worked, it was in the middle of the pandemic and people, you know, were not busy looking at the mosaic, but it was, I'm sure, like a surprise for, for many of us. And so when we went on to cover them working, I think like a big part of us, especially of, you know, me and I have also like a personal connection to Venice and I've spent a lot of my childhood there. It's kind of this like incredible change to what the city is because the city has always been a victim of floods and of high water and having just like the possibility to be sheltered from it was really surprising and emotional. During those flooding events, what was the conversation like among Italians? Was there much discussion about the existential threat of climate change or was it accepted as business as usual for Venice? I don't think that climate change was very much in the picture back then. You know, high water is always been there in Venice, like for a long time. My grandma is from Venice and I've heard stories of her having to deal with the high water since she was a child. So yeah, it was, I think it was very much like a normal thing there. I think maybe in the past couple of years when we had this like extreme, like really extreme high waters, then like there was more of a discussion around climate change and about these events becoming more extreme. Yeah, I think it was, I think it's a combination of the, the frequency of the events and the dramatic nature of the, of the events that maybe, you know, even for sort of hardened Venetians who had, you know, waiters in their closets and could sort of brave any high water event, they do think that there was a point when they were saying, this is not good. This doesn't feel like, um, the natural way of things. And, you know, and also the frustration with Mose was, was real because this was this 500 billion euro project, which was supposed to protect them and the islands. And it just, it, it's not even that it wasn't working. It didn't exist. And, you know, so I was there in 2019 during one of the, you know, really major floods. I think it's the second highest or third highest in history. And that's when I got the sense anyway that Venetians did not think that this was business as usual. Right. That there was a real it was more than concern. It was they were seeing their city underwater, like almost all of it. And, you know, you had top officials coming from Rome, you know, sort of grandstanding, you know, populace at the time. Um, Matteo Salvini, who was then the interior minister, I think, you know, he looked like he was going to go fly fishing. Right. He had, you know, overalls, you know, rubber overalls on. And but they were all clearly saying the same thing, which is. This can't happen anymore, right? And no one was denying climate change, by the way. They were saying that this is um, real and we need a way to protect the city and there should be a way to protect the city, which is Mose. So let's get it done. And so arguably too late because it was after the flood, Italy did get it done. For those who haven't yet read your piece or seen the great visuals, especially online, could you walk us through the mechanics of the Mose system and how it works? At its most basic level, Mose is a series of hollow seawalls that are built into the seabed at certain gates uh, between the sea and the lagoon around Venice. And they're always filled with water when they're flat on the bottom. 
And when the tides, the provisions that the tides are going to rise come in or a storm is coming or anyway, the experts determine that the water is going to flood into the lagoon and into the city, this sort of very complicated electronic system is activated. A button is pushed. And what happens is that those walls empty of water and they fill with air. Air is pumped into them. And just by the nature of physics, they rise because they float and they rise to the surface and they're yellow. So they have this very odd appearance. They almost look like these yellow Legos that are floating to the surface and they come to on an angle pointing away from the sea, but they come high enough that the high waves can't get over them. And it's not a complete solid wall. So some water does come through, but that also reduces the pressure on the walls so that they don't snap. And some, you know, very little water might come over, but it's basically cutting enough of the wave and keeping enough of the water, of the seawater, out of the lagoon that the level within the lagoon and so on the streets of Venice does not change. There is like maybe like a general idea that like one of the dangers with climate change is that like the water in the sea will raise so much the the sea level will raise so much that water might like go over like you know be like higher than the walls but actually like the walls are really high so like when we talk about like the danger in like you know a hundred years time it's not about the water going above the walls but it's about like the walls having to be up too often We'll talk about that. I mean, I was struck by that, like when they finally got it going in, in 2020, I want to come back to that. It seems like that was a big moment uh, where someone finally decided. But the engineers at the time, you said in your piece, thought, oh, we'll probably have to do this about five times a year, I think you said. They've already had to raise it, was it 49 times since 2020. How is that overuse and, and increasingly in the years? Tell us about the interaction with the lagoon and, and the concerns, maybe not immediate because it is this savior that it's going to create, I think you called it a fetid swamp or one of the critics, if, if you don't allow the flow of water in with more frequency. I think what was very interesting for us was to see kind of like the data around the tides in Venice because so the mosaic was designed to stop tides that are above 110 centimeters. And so in the first two decades of the 20th century, Venice had these tides only six times. And in the past 20 years, these tides exceeding 110 centimeters have happened more than 150 times. So like, you know, we read a lot about climate change, but like when I was looking at these figures, I was like, wow, like this is such a blatant example of like how it's actually already happening and in a big way. And so... Again, I think that like it's kind of important to note that right now, even if the walls are going up like 13 times a year instead of like six, that is not a problem. That's not a big problem, both in terms of like the balance between the seawater and the lagoon, about the port activity, it's not a big issue. So like the substantial issues in terms of like the health of the lagoon would happen if the number of closings would be much higher, like dozens or like, you know, several months even. But that is plausible, right? And that is, you know, we're talking, you know, maybe not tomorrow, 
But, you know, Venice has been around for a very long time and wants to be around for a lot longer. So within a future that is seeable, that could become a problem where, where the walls would be up so very often that the lagoon would be essentially closed. And the idea, especially environmental advocates are very concerned about, is that the, if the lagoon is constantly closed because the walls are constantly up, it can't sort of flush itself out. And oxygen levels will go down and you'll have these horrible sort of blooms of algae that, you know, it'll make Venice tough to walk around, right? <laughs> tough to have romantic rides through as well. Yeah, right? exactly. You might, you know, like your gondola, you know, or yes. might be hitting, you know, it might be like going through mud. Hopefully that won't happen. But there is a real risk, you know, not, again, it is not tomorrow, but we're not talking about in a thousand years or, or centuries. We're talking about a foreseeable future. You know, when you talk to engineers, however, they're more than happy to have this problem, right? Because yes. they'll, they'll take a problem in the future rather than a problem now. Is there a talk about that engineers coming up with a system to circulate the water? I understand there's a lock system that's proposed to preserve access to the Adriatic. Or are Italians just done spending money on this? You know, it's still technically experimental, the actual mosaic has the word experimental in its name. And so it's... Um, you, you don't get that a lot with government infrastructure projects. They cost billions of dollars. Yeah, right. like 50-year government. <laughs> yeah. You know, they tried, you know, in these first months where it was operating, to try and leave some of the walls down so that the water could flush out, which would solve everything, right? If they could keep the lagoon level low, but only raise some of the walls... But what we uh, came to understand is that that actually is not a quick fix, uh, or at least it, so far, that doesn't seem to work. So as far as I know, they haven't figured out an answer to that problem. Yeah. And just to add that, like one, one thing that I thought was really interesting is that, you know, we've spent like 5 billion euro on this project and we spent so all these years and we finally have these like fantastic walls that protect the city. But then there's still high water sometimes, you know, St. Mark's Square sometimes still floods. And so the issue of like not using the walls too often is already present, is already happening. Because like if we have these walls, why don't we just keep them up all the time to protect even like the lowest parts of the city that flood with lower tides? And so in terms of like just like, you know, engineers or like Italian things about solutions, they built a wall, a glass wall against St. Mark's in order not to use the mozza too often. Or they also are doing like several projects around Venice to lift the ground so that the lowest parts don't get flooded with, with lower tides. And so, yeah, so like they're definitely like already working not to use mozza too often to prevent it from choking the city. The solutions that they're coming up with now are sort of old fashioned solutions that they've been using for you know centuries, right? Raising the ground you know, that's not rocket science. That's like taking uh, the pavement off the sidewalks, putting more dirt on, and then putting the pavement back on. But if it works, why not? Climate Positive is produced by Hassi, a leading climate investment firm that actively partners with clients to deploy real assets that facilitate the energy transition. To learn more, please visit Hassi.com. Is there a hero in this story? I think probably, you know, if there are heroes of this story, it's the engineers who, you know, yes. over decades 
really believed in it. And there was a ton of opposition, opposition from all sorts of sectors, opposition in a way from the people who found a way to steal off their project, right? Opposition from environmental groups who had real grievances about what this might do for the lagoon and or against the lagoon, I should say, and might kill the lagoon. This became a project that it wasn't even unpopular. It was it was almost written off, right? It became like a punchline. But, you know, the engineers who really believed in it, they saw it through. But weirdly, the, the people who have to predict the weather, which is not easy in, in, you know, in human history, they're sort of the unsung heroes here. And so there's a provision center in Venice and there's a guy named Papa who is, who, you know, he's responsible for determining when the tides are coming, right? So he's sort of the guy looking for the threat coming in from the sea and he has to predict it and he predicts it correctly. And he has total confidence and stays awake till five in the morning or actually till nine in the morning, making sure that the walls are raised and that all of his predictions come to pass and that the city's safe. And the day of the last big flood, we divided our, our sort of time to be with him, but he stayed up the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And he also had like a very like personal story. Like he spent his childhood rescuing like hats from his dad's shop that would get constantly flooded. And so that night, that early morning that we were like sitting in his office and we were watching on their screen, these like huge waves crashing against rocks out in the lagoon and still like seeing that the city was dry. Like he was, you know, he was like completely like feeling the, the story as he, as he also like worked on it. Emma, given your personal connection to Venice, can you tell us what it was like when you were reporting on the first time Mose was deployed and what the feeling was among Venetians? Yeah, so I think what struck me the most was last November when we went. Yeah, it was like the biggest uh, flood that Mose kept at bay so far. And it was one of the worst flood. It would have been like one of the worst in history if Monza was not there. And we we did walk around and ask people. And I mean, first of all, like my even like myself personally, like, you know, we were seeing kids going to school, people reading on Valparetos and kind of life going on as normal when we, you know, we were aware of the damage that the, the tides would have made was Monza not there. And then we talked and spoke to some people whose houses would get constantly flooded and they just thanked the Mose and they seemed to also be like oblivious and like kind of a forgiven or forgotten, like how long it took for it to, to come to life. And, you know, all the money spent, they were just so grateful and so relieved. I think, I don't know if you agree, but. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, you know, the terms that people used, it was, you know, more than a few people, you know, sort of used almost religious language to thank the Mose, right? And so, and I think that that's not uh, a joke, you know, not an accident. Mose is meant to evoke Moses, who split the sea. And um, so maybe that lends itself to people sort of thanking, several people thank the, the God of Mose for keeping them dry. And, you know, maybe that's just something that people were saying, but you could really, there was deep gratitude. I, you know, I ran into one woman who was going down the steps of the Rialto Bridge. And again, this is this would have been completely flooded, okay, if Mose were not up. And uh, it was raining, so she had an umbrella up. But I talked to her and realized that she had a, a tote bag with Mose on it, with the yellow walls on it. 
And she just said she basically wanted to like represent Mosaic walking around because it had saved the city. And she was, she was an architect. Wow. And she was pretty representative of a lot of the people we talked to that day. But yeah, and then there were people like uh, tourists who had absolutely no idea that their entire <laughs> vacations would have been toast. Because also, Mose, don't forget, it was built not to be seen, right? So right. in a way, it was real, you know, the, when, when people are oblivious to it, it's really doing its job. Because it's something you should take for granted that you're not going to have high water anymore. It's far enough out um, that you don't see it. And even if you happen to be close to it, you don't see it unless it's up, right? So that, that was sort of the, the elegant aspect of the design was the, and the sort of very Italianness very of Italian. it. Very Italian, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very chic. Yeah, elegant. it's like yeah. a chic, it's like a chic, like very, very sleek line, right? Like you don't see it unless you need it. Well, let's talk about other reactions. So your piece mentioned that given the success, uh, someone from New York called, I, how much in your reporting did you, maybe didn't make it into the story, did you learn about how this might be applicable for other cities facing sea level rise at recognized Venice is unique, but curious if you heard about how exportable this is or that story is still to be written. I mean, I think that that story is probably still to be written. I mean, the mayor told me, not necessarily counterpoint, it wasn't the mayor of New York that called, but New York City was calling, curious about how this worked. Spitz, who is, again, the manager sort of in charge of all this, <laughs> sort of floated the idea that they could offset some of the costs of raising Mose every time, which is a lot of money, by sort of exporting it and, and selling sort of the intellectual property a little bit. I, part of that a little bit seems like um, we're in pipe dream uh, territory for now. Um, also, it's 5 billion euros. Like, I don't know how many people right. just want to throw 5 billion euros at some seawalls, but then again, it works. And then again, you're not starting in, the, in 1970, you're starting in 2023. So you're dealing with different technology. I mean, I think the deeper point is whether or not it's Mose, whether whatever the technology is, coastal cities around the world are going to have to do something. And Venice has done something. You know, Venice is one of the places that cities that are in danger can look to. Jason, you've done a lot of reporting on the Vatican. Do you have discussions with Pope Francis or others there about climate change and how we think about it in terms of some of these vulnerable cities? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm not um, on the phone with the Pope every day, but, you know, clearly climate change, if you were going to make a list of Pope Francis's priorities, it would either be the top or very close to the top of his priorities of his pontificate. And the cardinals who are closest to him, there's a, a Canadian cardinal named Cherney, who was instrumental in the writing of Laudato Si, care deeply about the climate. And, and it is something that the Pope will talk about at every uh, opportunity. I was, you know, recently uh, with him in South Sudan and in Congo. And those are, you know, South Sudan's a political story. It was Congo's, you know, also a political story. Yet they be both became climate stories because Francis made a point to point out that the environmental exploitation of those countries, uh, modern colonialism that was taking place by, by great powers, was not only you know, disenfranchising the people of those countries, but it was ruining the natural resources of those countries, which is, of course, deeply linked to the livelihood there. And so Francis, I think, is, you know, sometimes he's unheeded, 
but he is incessant about uh, raising threats to the climate and what we can do about it. So and I think he's sort of alone in the world. Sometimes he's in the wilderness, alone in the wilderness on that. But, you know, for now 10 years, he is a broken record on it and broken record has a negative connotation. But I think it's a broken record that a lot of people need to listen to. Both of you sort of cover a wide range of issues in, in Italy and in Europe. Not always climate or environmental stories. And I know this kind of reporting takes months, perhaps years. But, you know, are you already thinking about other climate or environmental issues that you think should be covered next? Uh, just because it's fresh in my mind, I just got back from north of uh, Milan along the Adda River, which is incredibly low right now. And so last year was the worst drought in 70 years uh, here in Italy and clearly across Europe. The drought was devastating. People in England saw their sort of green fields turn to hay right in front of their eyes. And I don't think that's a one off. Right. I think northern Italy is already in the grips of a terrible drought. That's what I was up there reporting on. If it's anything like last year, I think it's a it's a major problem, like economic problem, health problem. And I also wonder if if it's two years in a row that Europe has no water. Right. If that stops um, becoming talked about as such a, an, an exceptional year and at what point it becomes you know, normal and forces action and a change of behavior, uh, change of technology and just actually transformation here in Europe. So I think that that is a major story that uh, I know I'm paying attention to. Yeah. And I mean, I think initially there are so many stories that can be done around around climate change, the wildfires that happen every summer. Um and are devastating, but also I'm from the north of Italy and in the north of Italy, like a lot of, we have like a huge area of like alpine, like alpine area and, and the glacier is melting or just like wind, like snowless winters. And like, that's going to be like a massive change, both for nature, but also for like the economy of many of these places. And I think that's, that's definitely something that, that I would like to look at. So last year I was sort of on the, we almost called it the how hot is it beat? Because it seemed like every week during the summer, there was a new high temperature somewhere in Europe. So I found myself in Athens. I think Athens broke the European record for the hottest uh, day ever. It was a very strange summer where I kept going to the worst, hottest place. (laughs) And in places like, um, you know, outside of Syracuse in in Italy, uh, in Sicily, you know, you see these uh, often in, in Italy, they'll have the temperature written on the on a pharmacy sort of green cross outside in the street. And you see these numbers that, you know, sort of defy belief. Right. You just you think that the, the screen is broken. Right. I think I, I think it went up to like more than 110. And, you know, and these are towns where it's also lots of old people who are, you know, in the in the piazza. So no air conditioning, of course. There's no air conditioning. And I remember in Athens, I talked to the, this woman who was Athens's first heat officer. It's an official job now. You know, we were talking about what the solutions might be. And in a, in a way, it was a little similar to the Mose in that, you know, they were so focused on the problem now because it's so acute 
the, the idea of what might happen in 50 or 100 years, you just don't have the luxury to deal with that right now because it's, we are now, I think, at, at the acute phase. And so, you know, the, their big plan is to, you know, they want to plant trees, sure, and build a sort of green corridor out in Athens. But really what they need to do is just get a lot of air conditioning into that city. And air conditioning obviously is not great for the environment, right? But that is, she says that that is not a, a problem that she has the luxury to, to deal with. She has a population that she needs to keep cool. And so I think that's the sort of awkward situation we're in now where maybe the solutions might long-term contribute to the problem, but we no longer have the luxury to avoid them. What gives you both hope in your reporting? We, we t- you know, there's two sides to this, obviously beautifully framed, Jason, but um, Emma, if you want to reflect on anything that Jason said, or maybe just both of you answer the question, what gives you hope as you think about uh, the climate challenge and the reporting ahead of you? What I'm noticing that I think is really helpful is that there are many initiatives in which scientists and the media are starting to collaborate. And I think that is very helpful because I sometimes write about, you know, extreme weather events or fires, heat waves. You know, we're so careful and we're so scared of attributing to climate change because we don't know if we can say it. You know, we don't know if we can attribute it to it. And I think that like having like a strong support from the scientific community and have like a bigger interaction would really help us do like a fairer and more accurate coverage. And like, I'm seeing that happening around me, like a lot more um, with initiatives either by like, you know, European institutions or even, you know, the French like public TV has just started like a, a climate weather survey. You know, it's like they don't not just do the weather, they also do like a climate forecast on a very like mass program, you know, with like a massive outreach with like scientists going there. And I think, yeah, I think this kind of like interaction between journalists and scientists is something that is like very beneficial to the public. And yeah, and I see, and I see that happening more and more. You know, this might fall under the department of wishful thinking. That's okay. (laughs) But I, I actually just believe in human ingenuity and, you know, as clear as it is that, you know, this is a problem caused by people uh, to a large extent. I also think that there's just a good track record of people fixing problems. So I don't think it's something we should bank on, right? Like a vacuum coming to suck all the CO2 out of the atmosphere. But I wouldn't give up on that either. Um, Now, that takes a lot of, by the way, work. That doesn't happen by accident, right? That happens by governments deciding that this is, you know, their major priority. Just, you know, I, I always think of how fast the vaccines were developed because scientists got together and it became a major priority around the world and or especially in the United States. And and that was very heartening to me. You know, if that urgency was applied to climate, I don't know, maybe nothing would happen. Maybe maybe it's it's too far gone, but maybe something could happen. And that gives me hope. Emma, Jason, thank you both so much for taking the time today. You're reporting across a wide range of topics, including, Emma, yours on the children in Ukraine. I think it's what people go to journalism school to someday report on. And it's been wonderful to talk to you. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. It really helps us reach more listeners. 
You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at climateposipod or email us at climatepositive at hasse.com. I'm Gil Jenkins, and this is Climate Positive. <laughs>